So just as when you drop an enormous rock into the middle of a lake, so you get ripples that come to the surface... So we've seen week on week as we've gone through Acts, the ripples of the gospel spreading first from Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. They will spread to Rome where Acts will finish and they will spread on from there. But what we've got, I think, in these two chapters for this evening that Alex read for us are, if you like, snapshots of what perhaps a more settled ministry looks like. Because so far in Acts, it's been pretty fast-moving. It's been relentless. It's been fast-paced. But here in Corinth, chapter 18, and Ephesus, chapter 19, we see Paul and his team not just spending days or weeks in different places or on mission trips or journeys, but he, he settles for months and even years. So, glance down, 18.11, Paul stays in Corinth for a year and a half. Or in chapter 19, verse 10, this went on for two years. Now, it's two chapters. We could say an awful lot. We could have a number of series in these chapters. So we're going to have to be selective. But my hope is that as we look at 18 and 19 this evening, we will see something of priorities that we ought to have with a more settled ministry. Different principles, different ideas different things that we need to remember. Perhaps initially for us as a church, what do they say to us corporately as a family of God? What things does Luke record for us and why? But then perhaps as individuals, whether you might be someone in full-time, paid, set-aside gospel ministry, as some of you are, or perhaps just in your daily life as you go about living and speaking for Christ perhaps colleagues in the office or friends on your team, neighbours, family, whatever it might be. Not sort of hit-and-run relationships, but just longer-term stuff. Week by week, month by month, year by year. So I think there are differences between Corinth and Ephesus, but I want, first of all, just to focus in on some similarities, a couple of things. Firstly, we've said it's settled. So that's one thing that links the two towns together very clearly, there's a sense of being there for a a period of time. Paul is putting down at least shallow roots. But there's an emphasis too that I was quite struck by of this, the word of God going out, wherever he settles, he speaks, he teaches, he trains. Just sort of sweep over the text with me and glance at a few of those. So um, chapter 18, we're in Corinth, verse 4, every Sabbath he reasons in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia. Paul devotes himself exclusively to the preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Verse 11, Paul stays in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Then he heads to Ephesus. Verse 19, he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Again, we've seen it week on week. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. He heads to the synagogue first. He then moves on from here. Caesarea, Jerusalem, Antioch, Galatia, Phrygia, verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul sets out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he's not just persuading unbelievers, but he's teaching and training and nurturing and pastoring new believers too, watering baby plants on his way past. And when we've got Apollos 
in Ephesus. He's not the finished article. He only knows of the baptism of John. But what's he doing? Verse 25, he's been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately. Though he only knew of the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. He then gets taught, he heads to Achaia, and verse 28, he vigorously refutes his Jewish opponents in public. Uh, It's proven from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul then arrives long-term in Ephesus, again goes to synagogue first, verse 8, enters the synagogue, speaks boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. He leaves there, he arrives at the lecture hall of Tyrannus, he's there for 18 months. He took disciples with him and had discussions daily. Oh, sorry, two years, he went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. Probably enough for now, but just, just latch on to that point. The importance of teaching in long-term Christian ministry. There are lots and lots and lots of things that we could do as church. But here at least is one thing that we, I take it, must do. It's the word of God doing its work in people's lives. The importance of God speaking. Unless you're visiting, you probably know that... We teach at Magdalen Road. You will find more or longer than average sermons on a Sunday morning, at least for churches in the UK. We'll um, teach the Word of God. We think it's important. We'll have it read to us. We have midweek home groups where we will eat and pray, but we will study the Bible as well, helping one another to apply God's Word to our lives. We will encourage individuals to read the Bible, to read Christian books. We seek to have a culture where we are helping one another apply the Bible into our lives, challenging, encouraging. But I was just struck by the fact that wherever they went, ministry was about God's word going out. I take it that's not just an Acts thing, but that that is a vital thing for any kind of church, at least as Luke tells us. He speaks, he persuades, he encourages Because Paul knew that the word of God had power. And our hearts might want to go after other things. And there might be other things that get trendy in terms of ministry and what churches should focus on. But let's never move on from the importance of God's word. The importance of teaching being at the heart of who we are as a community of God's people. Because his word is powerful. Because we're people who forget his voice. We run after other voices. Let's not be ashamed of teaching. And so, let's zoom in on each location. And what I want you to do, so we've seen something of the thing that unites them. It's a settled ministry. It's a ministry where God's word is vital. But I want you to see in Corinth that it is God's mission. I think there's an emphasis on God's sovereignty in Corinth. And in Ephesus, chapter 19... I think Jesus is the focus. He is vital, he is foundational, he is crucial um, as God's mission on the earth happens. So Corinth first, chapter 18, the sovereignty of God. And what I want you to, to see is that God is the missioner. This is his mission. It's not Paul, but it's God. Yes, he uses people, but it is his task. He is in charge. And you see it in a number of ways. So there's... At the heart of it, you get this encouragement, this vision from the Lord, verse 9 and 10. 
One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Don't be afraid, keep on speaking, don't be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. And so Paul stays in Corinth. In somewhere like Berea, he had moved on when he heard there was opposition, when things were getting hard. But here, for a year and a half, he stays and he preaches and he strengthens. He perseveres. And why is that? Well, there's the promise of safety. But also, there's that curious phrase at the end of verse 10, because I have many people in this city. And Paul has just arrived. He's not been there long. There's just a handful of converts. So so what is going on? I take it... God is saying, well, stay and preach here because I have people here. And they need to hear the gospel. And they need to repent and believe. Those whom I have chosen before the creation of the world, those whom I will draw to myself as they hear my message, stay and speak for them. And so Paul stays and Paul speaks. It's a bit silly, but notice he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, verse 10, For I am with you, no one's going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. And then verse 11, So, Paul, why don't you head to Ephesus? Because I've got Corinth covered, really. My people are here and it's going to be okay. I don't really need you. God's sovereignty doesn't work like that. I have people here. I am sovereign. But I use people like you. We have responsibility. It might be his mission. He might be in charge. But he uses people like me and people like you in the situations that we're in. The places that he calls us to through the week. It's easy to forget that, I think. In a longer term, more settled ministry, we can just kind of refrain from speaking. Because if we know we're only going to see them for a week, then we might be bolder. But if we're here for a while... It's easier to keep quiet. Now, we need to be sensitive. Of course. And we need to be gentle. But God says to Paul in Corinth, I have people here. And so speak. Stay here. And so he does. So he encourages him. And then we see companionship as well. It seems to me God, in his sovereignty again, pulls together this crack team. Priscilla and Aquila turn up, verses 2 and (coughs) 3. Paul left Athens and and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. Because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So Priscilla and Aquila, chased out of Rome by Claudius, end up in Corinth with Paul. And it happens that they are tent makers too. And so the three of them work together. They get through the week to make cash to live on. And in the Sabbath, Paul is there reasoning in the synagogue. It's an encouragement we see God's sovereignty in drawing together the people that he needs for the tasks that he calls them to. I find that really encouraging. I've just spent an afternoon, and some of you will know, looking at applications for our assistant pastor position at Magdalen Road. Many brilliant, different people, great life experience, variety of different gifts, different characters. And so we use our, our brains and our wisdom and our intellect, 
but we pray because we trust that God is in charge. He, he draws the teams together that he wants. Here, Priscilla and Aquila just happened to be in Corinth at the same time as Paul when they had been driven because of Claudius in Rome. Well, so let's be a church that prays whoever this assistant pastor might be, and we'd love you to pray on Friday as we interview. But pray that God would be sovereign and draw together the people that he wants for us at this time in this place for what he's called us to. So he encourages them with companionship as well. And then there's practical provision. So they have been tent-making, but then Silas and Timothy turn up in verse 5. They come from Macedonia. And so Paul is, is freed up, he's set apart in this more settled ministry for, if you like, full-time gospel ministry. It's not a great phrase, but you know what I mean. He's able to concentrate fully and exclusively on preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. It's, it's his mission again. He pulls together his people and he pulls together the resources that he needs to do the things that he calls them to. But the final thing as well is protection. And you see that quite clearly. We've seen week on week on week that Paul encounters opposition pretty much where he goes. The gospel divides people. The gospel challenges people. The gospel makes people feel uncomfortable. And it's no different in Corinth. So have a look at verse 6. There you see it first. The Jews oppose Paul, so he leaves the synagogue. And he says to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It seems to me the, the idea he is using here, the kind of language is one of the Old Testament prophets. He's, he's sounding quite a lot like Ezekiel. Ezekiel's job was, was one of being a watchman, he says. And so God says this to Ezekiel. He says, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways, and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. Slightly terrifying, Ezekiel's job was to warn people that God's judgment was coming. And if Ezekiel didn't do that, he is held accountable. It's as if their blood is on his head. But if he did warn them and they press on anyway in their rebellion, then Ezekiel wasn't accountable. He had been faithful. He had done his job. He had warned them. And Paul seems to say, I have warned you. Your blood is now on your own heads. I've done my job, but you, you continue to reject. You continue to turn away. You reject God, you reject his message, you reject his messenger. And so verse 6, your blood be on your own heads. He washes his hands of them, he heads next door, and the synagogue ruler turns to Christ. But opposition is still growing. Verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment this man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to him, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanour or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. 
But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I won't be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. And the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. But Paul is protected. You see, just as God promised he would be, we know it's not always the case. We've been through Acts. We've seen in Philippi, he, got, he was beaten, sent to jail. We saw in Thessalonica, Paul's host Jason had to go on bail for him. But in Corinth, as God promised, he is safe. He is protected. God is trustworthy. And you see, when you've been in the same place for quite a long time, it's easy to begin to think it's all about us. But we see in Corinth is about him. He is sovereign. He is in charge. It is his mission. God has provided what Paul has needed for him. He's provided encouragement when he needed it to stay here. There's work to do. He's provided companionship. He's provided practical provision. He's provided protection when it's been needed. And so I'd love to urge you, and we will pray in a bit for us in our long-term outreach to this area, seeking to love this area, to take the gospel to this area, that we would know it is God's mission, that we would trust him, and yet that we would trust him with the things that he gives us to do, with the gifts that he provides for us to do them. So in Corinth, remember it's God's mission. In Ephesus, chapter 19... Notice that it is all about Jesus. And that might even seem an obvious thing to say. But I suspect you shall know in your heart that it is an easy thing to forget. (coughs) I wonder if it's emphasised particularly because of the story of power in Ephesus. Now we saw some of this And before Christmas in Sunday mornings, we saw that there was the great temple of Artemis. We saw various occult groups. We saw different competing powers. And so Paul prays for power for the church. Do you remember that? In one sense, it seems a particularly spiritually aware city, but a hodgepodge of ideas and claims and kind of mismatch of different truths. And so into that context comes Jesus. The one with true power. And so what are these reminders? I think there are three, I'm sure there are many more, but three just to focus in on. Um, Verses 1 to 10 of chapter 19. Jesus is the message. And you get this um, in 1 to 10, this slightly funny situation that had been true for Apollos as well at the end of the previous chapter. There were disciples, but it's as if they only had kind of 80% of the truth. I take it we're at a particular time in salvation history here in the story of God's work in the world, but you get these guys who don't have a full revelation of the gospel. They've been baptised, but only the baptism of John, or, or John's disciples. And so, 19 verse 1, When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. 
So Paul asked, well then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. On hearing it, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. John was just a signpost. And they hadn't realised that. Jesus was the destination. And so they were baptised and we have another mini Pentecost. And again, Paul's ministry then begins in the synagogue until he receives opposition and then he heads to the Gentiles and he heads to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He's there for 24 months. But Jesus, it seems to me, is the message. The word of God is what is going out. Jesus is important too, 11 to 20, because he has the power to transform. (coughs) Paul wasn't just speaking in the area where he was settled. That's striking, isn't it? His message, seems to me, is backed up by actions. It's initially there because we hear he's the worker of miracles, or at least God did amazing things through Paul, verse 11. Seems he's continuing the, the work of Jesus, testifying to the truth of the message. Actions to back up the truth. Uh, elsewhere, um, I think a bit more about miracles and apostles. Two, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 is a helpful verse to sort of bury away there and think about. Paul will talk about these being the, the marks of a true apostle. He will say including signs, wonders and miracles. I'm not saying we don't have miracles now. But it seems it was a particular thing at that point in salvation history for the, for the initial apostles as they took God's word with them. Actions to testify that the word was true. But we see transformed lives. And you see that in verse 12. There are illnesses that are cured. We see it in verse 13 to 15. You've got evil spirits who, who are removed. This slightly amusing little episode of these sort of magician frauds who are doing incantations in the powerful name of Jesus, but no real spiritual power or authority to deal with the stuff that they're doing. But it's striking as well because Jesus brings transformation because people's priorities are completely changed. The stuff that they value is dramatically altered. So 17 to 20... When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who had believed now came and openly confessed what they had done and a number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Again, the ripples moving out and out and out. Lives changed. In Ephesus, it had a sort of magical element. We've said it's a city of power. Costly scrolls being burnt, done away with. When you truly know Jesus and you understand his power, then things change. It changes the stuff that we live for. changes the things that we value and we care about. If you're here this evening and you would call yourself a Christian, 
then that is so important for you to grasp. It's not just a question of something we do or a hobby we have or something for a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, but remember that Jesus changes everything. All our values. So these guys, they were prepared to, to burn money because they knew they didn't uh, do that anymore. They didn't practice sorcery. They got rid of their scrolls publicly. The things that we care about, the things that motivate us and drive us, change. But notice too, as we finish the chapter, that again, with Jesus comes opposition. It seems to me the opposition here in Ephesus was slightly different from that in Corinth, at least in one sense. Here it was about self-preservation and greed. So what's going on? Demetrius Demetrius, uh, makes silver shrines to the goddess Artemis. And people are are worshipping Jesus now. And they're not worshipping Artemis. And so he is making less money. And so he gathers around him others in a similar boat, losing trade, making less money. And he says to them, verse 25, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Fancy that. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Striking that the gospel is growing, the word of God is spreading. And that means idolatry is suffering. Isn't that good news? They, they riot about it. They kick, they kick off. They shout. And Paul wants to stand before them and, and he's convinced he shouldn't do that. And then it's a big mess until this city clerk stands up. He's a, he's a key man, it seems. He sits in between the Roman government who will be in charge of Ephesus ultimately, at least from a human perspective, and then the city officials who will sit underneath their authority. And he sits in between and he says... Verse 35 to 41, do you know what's the real danger here? It's not Paul's teaching. The real danger is that you're going to be charged for rioting if we carry on like this. And if that happens, then our ability to worship this God whom we've made with our own hands, Artemis, could be taken away from us. The real danger isn't what Paul is saying or what the Christians are saying. The real danger is that we're going to lose our freedom to do what we want. The gospel spreads and idolatry declines. False gods are done away with. It's quite trendy at the moment in some parts of church more globally to talk about kind of cultural transformation that comes as as the gospel spreads, as it impacts an area for good. So if lots of people become Christians, then that will change the feel of an area. It will change workplaces. It will change culture. It seems to me that's a very good thing. But look at what it means here. It means opposition. When the gospel transforms an area, then there may well be opposition to that. 
Do you know, I would love, I would love for the gospel to so impact East Oxford and Oxford that, that sinful practices, that idolatry would suffer and so that we, that Christians, would receive hardship for that. That actually the difference that Jesus makes would be seen as sin declines, as the true God is worshipped. And as people stop worshipping false gods, then people kick off. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Wouldn't that be amazing to see the gospel so transform this area and beyond that people don't like it? So chapters 18 to 19, I put to you, is Paul with a slightly more settled ministry. And Luke focusing, focusing in on a couple of priorities couple of things to remember. Corinth, we've seen that God is the missioner. He is in charge. He is sovereign. He is at work and so he provides what we need to do the stuff that he calls us to do. He gives us encouragement, companions, provision, protection. But the other thing we can easily forget is it's all about Jesus. Jesus, the one who transforms people, transforms people's values and priorities. Jesus, the one who brings opposition because people change how they live. 